About 22, 23 years ago, there was a book that invaded our home. And uh, I'm not much of a reader, so when a book shows up, it catches my attention. And this book made everything really real, really fast. And the book was What to Expect When You're Expecting. And some of you who have been through that remember that book. Uh, you can, maybe you have it right now. There are a couple of different editions. They've tried to update the cover at least. But it's an incredibly uh, invaluable resource for everyone who is expecting. Whether you're expecting to give birth, you're waiting on that child uh, to adopt, or you're waiting on the child to foster, or you, you're expecting that addition, that blessing in your life. Having that resource has been a help for hundreds of thousands of expectant mothers through the years. But if you know anything about that process and about the waiting and about the expecting, the truth is that there is as much to do in the waiting part really as there is after the gift is there. There are decisions to make and there are colors to pick out and there are appointments to be kept and there are emotions to work through and there are fears to overcome. Waiting and expecting can come together and at times we forget that. We think of waiting as I'm just sitting and whenever you're ready, it'll be here. I'm just waiting on the gift. I'm waiting on the response. I'm waiting on the visit, whatever it may be. But Really waiting with expectation means you're preparing. You're getting ready for something big. And as we begin our new year together, as we start 2023, the question that I posed last week was, do you expect God to do anything of significance around you, in you, or through you this year? Because how we expect, how we approach this idea, what our heart stance is and what our mindset is going into this will ultimately determine if we experience that. At the end of 2023, if we look back and don't see any big movements of God around us, in us, or through us, the answer is not, well, God just wasn't interested in using me. I guess I'm not the kind of person God uses, or God just didn't have time. The answer is more, has more to do with us not expecting him to move. The wisdom we got last week from the book of James was that anyone who's ready for God to move must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. If you want God to do big things and to move in significant kinds of ways, it begins with having this expectation, which is ultimately a belief. Now, how do we know if we believe enough? Say, well, I believe, but what are you believing? Are you believing that God can, or are you believing that God will, or even to take it a step further, are you believing that God will through you? Because just believing God can, the same book of James tells us that even the demons understand that. They know he can. They believe that. But to believe that he's going to move, and that ultimately that he's going to move around us and in us and through us, that's a whole different kind of thing. And most of you are probably struggling with the whole arrogance idea. Like, how do I just say, well, of course, God's going to use me in powerful ways. That just seems a little bit presumptuous. But yet, as you go through Scripture and you find the people that God did these amazing things around, in, and through, they were people who were expecting that. They were trusting in that. They were believing in that. 
And my hope is that every single one of us experienced that this year. But again, it's one thing to believe he can, another to believe he will, and even a step further, another step of faith to believe that he's actually going to do that through us. When we go through the scripture, through the story of God, we find this waiting on God principle. And it's as if that gives us a license to do nothing. I'm just going to sit back and I'm waiting on the Lord. I mean, it's a verse. I'm going to wait on God. It's an instruction. I'm going to wait on him. Those that wait on the Lord, God will renew their strength or mount up with wings like eagles. Not We know those verses or we've heard them or seen them or read them on a plaque before. Waiting on the Lord. But waiting doesn't mean sitting and doing nothing. Waiting means I'm preparing myself for that moment when God says, now's the time because I want to be ready to go. I don't want God to turn and say, are you ready? And I say, well, hold on. You didn't give me enough time. I'm going to be ready. And my hope is that as you move into this new year, you're expecting God to do big, miraculous things in your home, in your relationships, at work, in your, with your dreams and with your goals, with your plans, whatever they may be, that you're expecting God to move. But expecting God to move means I am doing something now. Just as an expectant mother has that book or someone who's expecting to have that addition to the family is preparing. You and I have to prepare. Last week, we looked at our plans. To give God proof that we're ready, we begin by taking the plans that we have and filtering them through his purpose. Our daily schedule, the goals and the dreams that we have. And if you had one of those cards last week, one of these commitment cards, you know it, it touched on all those areas, our personal relationships, our finances, our devotion, our, our goals, our dreams, our hopes, all of those things. And we're setting those aside and saying, God, I want to be ready. And so I'm going to give these things to you. I'm going to begin the right way. Well, today I want us to move past the plans and begin to talk about our people. Most of you could look at your own life, the people that are around you, and predict accurately whether or not God's going to do anything spectacular through your life. Because for most of us, the people that we choose determine our expectations. The people that we choose to bring into our lives, that choice, that decision, those invitations, that is our expectation level. We experienced this, those of you who follow college football in any way, this uh, throughout December, the bowl games, which are really nothing. They're just exhibition games. And the people that the coaches put on the field determine that expectation level. And we all went through that. If you're following Tennessee and you were ready for the bowl game, you looked and said, oh, who's not playing? One, two, three, four. Like, no one's playing so the expectation level is, hey, guys, just don't hurt yourselves. Let's just make our money and get back out of debt. Like, that's the expectation level. And it was not just one college. It was dozens of colleges. They're not expecting a whole lot, so they're just putting people out that they might not, might not normally have put out on the field. Now, you contrast that with the college playoff games, and that's completely different. You've got some of those guys saying, coach, can I play? No, not a chance. <laughs> got the jersey. I've already, I'm sorry. This game's important. You're not playing. And there's an expectation level that is determined by the people that we bring into our lives. Some of you business people, you got a client that says, I want to double my investment with you this year. So my partner and I want to meet with you and just grab one of your friends and let's get together and talk this over. Now you've got to decide who should be with me in this important meeting. 
And you men, be honest, you'd scroll through your phones thinking, oh, not a chance. He can't, uh-uh, no, no way. Like you're just going through like, ugh, I don't know what he'll say. I don't, I don't know what she'll do. I, I don't know. Like you're careful with who you bring into it based on that expectation level. Maybe there's a girl that you're interested in and she says, yeah, let's, let's all do something. I've got a friend and she doesn't have a boyfriend. So why don't you grab one of your friends and we'll all meet up? Well, this is important to you because you like this girl, but you're thinking, oh man, which of my friends will not ruin this moment? Like, how do I bring people in? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous about this because only certain people do I want to be a part of that. And how important something is, the expectation level, that's determined. And have, we have it demonstrated by the people that we actually invite to be a part of that. And if you desire God to do something significant in your life this year, it's worth taking a step back and saying, who am I bringing into this? Because ultimately, relationships are going to be the most influential part of your life. And the people that are in your life are going to shape your life. And that's why I say, if you really want to know how 2023 is going to go, take a look at the people that you've invited into your life right now. That's going to determine it. Now, as we work through this together today, this is not about eliminating people from your life. Most of the time, this is gonna be about adding people. It's not that you just have the wrong people because those people need you and you need them, most likely. You might have some relationships that are not healthy or toxic and you might have to step away for a season or for good, then we get that. But this is more about adding relationships than it is getting rid of relationships. So I want us to take a look at one significant relationship in the story of God. It's between Elijah and Elisha. Uh, two, they're not brothers. They weren't twins given similar names. They're two completely different people. One's a prophet that lived in one time, and then there was another prophet that came behind him. Those two guys, Elijah, then Elisha. Now, they got together in an odd sort of way that we'll backtrack and, and see in a minute. But they served together. They spoke together together. They partnered together. They represented God together. They had a very, very unique relationship. But it was obvious who was leading who. Elijah was a leading, Elisha was a leading, was leading Elisha. And then the time came for Elijah to go on. He knew that God was about to call him home. His time was past. He had already completed the work that God had for him. So they went on to take a walk, and Elijah told Elisha, why don't you stay back? I'm going to go take a walk over here. He said, I'm not going to leave you for anything. You're not going to go anywhere without me right now because I know what's going on. So he stayed with Elijah. They went a little bit further. Elijah said, Elisha, why don't you just stay here? He said, I'm not going. He tried several times to distance himself from Elisha, and Elisha said, no, I'm staying with you. So they got to the edge of a body of water. They got to the edge of the Jordan River at some portion there, and they went to go across the water. Elisha noticed, hey, there's water here. We can't walk across the water. Elijah must have a miracle up his sleeve. And Elijah took off his mantle, they called it his coat, his outer garment, hit the water with it, and the water parted. And they walked across their little area to the other side. Once they got across the Jordan, we have in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, this interesting request from Elisha. It says, when they crossed Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. Elijah knew that he would be leaving Elisha, and so he said, 
What do you want me to do for you? You know my time is coming to an end now. What can I do for you? And Elisha said, in essence, I want a little bit of what God gave you. I want some of that. I'll have what you're having. Like, I, I want to experience that. God's favor and God's hand, God's power on you. I want to know that. Now, years earlier, Elijah would have never dreamed anyone would have wanted any part of his life, much less to have the, the last wish, if you will, I want some of what you have. He was at a point in his own life, had been prior to being with Elisha, where he was lonely, he was afraid, he was tired, he was by himself, he was being ridiculed, he was shunned, he was hunted down, and he was hated. Elijah experienced all of that, so Elijah told God, I want to die. I'm done. I'm done here. I I don't want to live anymore. I can't take this anymore. I don't want to be around. I just want to die. And God told Elijah, no, not yet. We're not doing that. I've got another chapter written for you, but I want you to go to this one particular place, and I'll show you what that is. So he told him to go to a place called Horeb, which is the same place where Moses was. Another word for it was Sinai, where Moses was when he had his time with God, and God gave him the tablets and said, lead my people. That same special sacred place, God said, I want you to go there. So Elijah took a journey, went to this particular place. And while he was there, there, was, there were natural uh, disaster, almost kinds of moments with earthquakes and there was fire and there was this crazy wind that was going on. And then after all that was over with, God whispered to Elijah and God said, what are you doing here? And in 1 Kings chapter 19, he, being Elijah, replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him. All right, so Elijah's here in front of the Lord, and he says, I've got nowhere to go. Everybody I care about has left me. I'm by myself. I'm the only person sticking up for you. Swords are coming after me. It's awful. And I'm just here waiting to die. That's why I'm in this spot. So he gets a reply from the Lord, and the Lord speaks back to him and says, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mehalot to succeed you as a prophet. You love watching me struggle, don't you? Jehu will put to death any who escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, that's a lot. There's a mouthful, literally, but there's a lot of stuff there. But what God was saying was, one, Elijah, you're not alone. You have felt alone. You felt abandoned. You felt pushed aside. You felt shunned. You felt hated. You felt all that. But this whole time, while you've been in isolation, ready to die, I have been assembling who is going to become your people. 
There's a king that needs to be anointed, and you're going to be the one. There's another king that needs to be anointed. You're going to be the one. There is another army officer who stands ready to fight, and there is a prophet who is ready to succeed you. And to top it all off, there are 7,000 people that I have preserved as a remnant who are waiting on someone to lead them, and they have been faithful and just needing a spiritual leader. Listen, you're not alone. You just haven't seen what I've been doing behind the scenes to prepare you for the next chapter because what I'm going to do for you next is going to require people. You don't have enough strength on your own, and I have the people for you. When Elijah was being honest with God about his feelings, perhaps the most honest he was was at the very end when he said, and I am the only one left. Because when you feel like you have no one else around you, there is not just a lack of a strength, there is a lack of inspiration, there's a lack of value, there's a lack of purpose. And God said, no, I've got all of that worked out. I've been assembling your tribe this entire time. And that began the relationship with Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah did go back. He did get connected. He did anoint those kings and then connect with Elisha. And they began this relationship where one prophet who is on his way out is preparing another prophet who is going to take his place. This mentor-protege kind of relationship they had that as time went on, as they continued to serve together, became more and more about a peer relationship than it did mentor and protege. So now we fast forward to where we were a moment ago, which I guess is going backwards. I'm not sure. But anyway, we're back where we were before, where Elijah's about to go away, and he says to Elisha, what can I do for you? And Elisha says, I want what you've got twice as much. I want God's favor on me the way it was on you. And Elijah told Elisha, that's a lot. That's a lot to ask. But here's how you're going to know if God gives you that, because it's not mine to give. My strength is only from the Lord. And if he wants to use you in the same way that he's been working around me and in me and through me, then that's gonna be on him. And here's how you're going to know if you have the power. God's about to take me away. And if you see me when I leave, then you're going to know that that's confirmation that God's gonna do this miraculous thing through you. I don't know if Elisha understood exactly what Elijah was saying when I leave, but not long after that, we're told that chariots of horses, the chariots of fire, came and took Elijah away. He didn't die the way all of us are going to experience our passing on to what God has for us. There wasn't an old age, and I just fell down, and I died, or I was in a war. And I, Elijah didn't experience any of that. God took him away. But Elisha saw it happen. So Elisha is there standing, looking at what was Elijah, He's gone, and I can't help but think it's like an Obi-Wan Kenobi moment. Like there's the, you know, the cloak just kind of there. Like, Elijah, what, what, what just happened? What am I doing? And he picked up Elijah's cloak. In your scripture, it might say mantle. It was called something different, but it was a symbol of his faith, the favor that God had on him. And he picked up the cloak that was left behind when Elijah left, and he was just holding it there. And there were 50 prophets that were not with him crossing the Jordan, but just near, close enough where they watched it all happen and they could see Elisha. And they're waiting to see, like, has God passed on his favor to Elisha? Is God's spirit on Elisha the way it was on Elijah? How is this going to work out? 
And I wish I could go back into the story of God and see this. There are a lot of moments that are interesting to me, but I, this would have been so powerful because this is this one has attitude. Elisha is standing there with this cloak that was left behind by Elijah, his mentor, his friend, his partner. And he's like, I, I gotta take this with me. And this is like the symbol. And he turned around to go back and the waters had receded. They had come back. Like now he was going to have to swim or perform a miracle the way Elijah had done just moments earlier, hours earlier. So he's standing there at the bank of the Jordan, the cloak in the hand, 50 prophets on the outside watching to see, is Elisha gonna be a man of God like Elijah was? And Elisha's heart beating out of his chest, just said, here we go. And he slapped the water with Elijah's cloak and the water parted. Now, I don't know what a Hebrew strut was 5,000 years ago, but like, it happened there. Like, there's no way he didn't strut across there thinking, fellas, the game is still on. Like, I'm still here. It's happening. I'm not Elijah, but God's power is on me in that way. If I was him, I would have walked so slowly across that road, right? so slowly on that dry ground, leaning down just to pick it up and just show. What a moment for him to realize that God's power was on him. So Elisha moves forward in Elijah's power. Elisha's life has changed forever as a result of the connection he had with Elijah. And as time went on, even Elisha got a servant or two or three to go with him. He had people that followed with him and learned from him and watched him do miraculous things that we read about all throughout 2 Kings. And there was a time when Elisha's favor ran out with the people, just like Elijah's had. And there were kings and armies that were coming after him, wanting to kill him. And Elisha and his servant were now trapped in this little hut, trying to escape death. And there was an army on the outside waiting. And we have the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. Verse 15 says, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what will we do, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Two men in a hut. And Elisha says, it's okay. We have more people than they do. And just as years earlier, Elisha surely scratched his head and thought, oh man, Elijah is losing it. I don't know what he's talking about. Now we've got a servant looking at Elisha the same way. Thinking, oh, old man Elisha doesn't get it. He, He's confused. He doesn't understand. There is an army of people outside, and he thinks we're going to outnumber them. This is the sad end. This is where I turn to God and say, give me a double portion of what he had, because obviously he is about to leave. But instead, we have a prayer in verse 17. Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see, talking about his servant. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God enabled the servant to see what Elisha lived with, that vision of something beyond what's happening around us, to see God at work. And he looked up and saw these chariots of fire led by horses on the outside behind that army ready to protect them. So this incredible relationship of Elijah to Elisha went on with Elisha and his servant. And then here we are thousands of years later reading about this. Now there's a lot here to take a look at. I know a lot of points we could pull out. 
But I just want us to take a look at that relationship between Elijah and Elisha and be reminded that if you and I are going to experience God do incredible things around us, in us, and through us, that is going to, in some part, be determined by the people that we invite into our stories, the people that we allow into our stories, because the relationships you have are going to be the most influential parts of your life. I spend, with most of you, one hour a week. That's it. Some of you have some other Christian friends that you'll see in a small group or other places, maybe an additional hour and a half throughout the week. You've got people that you work with, bosses, and that. the people that you allow into your life, those are the ones that are going to be most influential because of your constant communication, the constant time together, the, the hangout time, all that stuff is so important. And if you wanna know what your year is going to look like, you can probably just look at the people that you've allowed around you. Now, again, this is not about eliminating people for most of you. It's about bringing people in. So I wanna encourage you with this today. If I expect God to work around me, in me, and through me this year, I need first someone in front of me. Just as Elisha needed Elijah, just as the servant needed Elisha, we need someone in front of me. In other words, I need to have someone in my life who has already been where it is that I hope God takes me. Maybe not physically or even financially, but someone who has been where I want to be heart-wise, my character, my integrity. Like it would be okay if in 15 years I ended up like that. It's like that would be okay. Like how many of us have those people in our lives already to say they've been where I want to be? It may not be an age thing. It may not be a generational thing. It may not be a church involvement kind of thing. They've been active longer than I. It's just where they are, that's where I want to go. Someone who challenges us. Someone who spiritually makes us want to be better. Someone who, when they make a decision, we're watching and we're thinking, oh, I probably wouldn't have done that, but I should. I probably would not have responded that way, but next time I hope I do. We need someone in front of us. Secondly, we need someone beside us. I need someone beside me. Not as much challenging me as much as helping me along the way. Someone that understands the journey, someone that understands the path that I'm on. Someone beside me where I can turn to and say, here's what I'm going through, what do you think? Here's what I'm going through, could you pray for me in this? Here's where I'm headed, what would you do in this, in this moment here? Maybe we're generationally the same, maybe our age and our, our position in life is similar, or maybe not, but it's just we're doing the same thing. We're on the same path. You're not there yet, I'm not there yet, but by God's grace, we're gonna help each other get there. Someone who would even be willing to pick up the phone and say, hey, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, I didn't ask your opinion. It doesn't matter. I'm not letting you go down this way. I'm not letting you do this. I'm, I'm not okay with this. Most of us will sit back and go, well, it's not my business. If they want to destroy their lives, go, I mean, go ahead. No, I don't mean those kind of people. I mean the kind that say, hang tight, I'm coming over. Well, I don't want you to come over. I'm coming anyway because we're not doing this. God's doing something too important in your life. You've worked too hard to get here. I'm not going to allow this to happen. Do you have someone who would be willing to fight for you that way and who you would be willing to fight for in the same way? And then third, someone behind me. Someone that we're willing to help be better than we are. Someone who we're willing to help 
get to where we were. Now, none of us is completely proud of every decision we've ever made. Even Elijah would have told Elisha, be better than me, man. I asked God to kill me one time. I asked God to end my life. I didn't want to be here anymore. I complained and complained and complained and didn't know what he was doing behind the scenes. Don't, don't be like me. And we could all identify in the same way. But to have someone behind us, one, is ultimately going to make us a little more careful of what we're doing. That what to expect when you're expecting book showed up twice in our family. First time was powerful. First time stole my heart away. My daughter took it and she hadn't given it back since. I mean, she's got it. But the pressure wasn't there because I can't teach her to be a woman. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. If she turns out to be not the woman she wants to be, I just say, don't blame me. Blame your mom because I did not do it. I don't know how to be a woman. I don't know that. Well, a couple years later, a son came along. That pressure ratcheted up a lot, a lot. Because my wife looked at me like, don't blame me. I don't know what to do to be a man. I don't know. I wanted to go, you're looking at the man. Like, you know, I don't know what to do. He's yours. Like, figure it out. And it has been a challenge, not on him, but on me. Because with every single move, I know I've got eyes going, how do you do that as a godly man? What do you say when you're a godly man and that's being said? How do you respond? How do you go after that? How do you wait on the Lord, but also take a step of faith? How do you, like somebody's watching me all the time and I'm not a perfect man and I have so many regrets throughout my lifetime, but I would have so many more had I not at times realized I had someone watching me. And it's not just about family, it's just in general. We all have someone watching us, whether we have a child or not. We have people watching saying, what, what, what does the follower of Jesus do in a moment like this? What does a man do? What does a woman of God do in this kind of situation? Someone behind us. He said, well, listen, I just came to worship, to celebrate Jesus today. I didn't want homework. And now I've got to go find someone in front of me, someone beside me, someone behind me. I realize it seems like a lot of work. But it's not all on us. Go back to Elijah. Elijah's in a cave saying, I want to die because I'm by myself. And God whispers a little chuckle, no, you're not. No, you're not. This has been a lonely season, but I've been preparing your people. Now leave this place, go back. I'll show you the way because I've got people that are ready for you. Some are going to show you the way. Some are going to walk with you and give you the strength along the way. And then some are ultimately going to follow your way. And all of those will be necessary for the next chapter that I have for you. So as you and I together evaluate our own circles, it's not as much, God, I got to go out and find these people that fall into these categories. It's more or less saying, God, help me to be able to view my life through your eyes and see who it is you're placing in my life that you've prepared for me in this next chapter. Because there are other people that are looking for someone just like me to help them in the next chapter too, and together we're going to do this journey right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love and your patience with us. And there had to be moments where you looked at Elijah with all the powerful, miraculous things you were doing through him and had to have your heart broken as he was miserable through it all. And God, we know we have to fight for joy. It's not an easy thing. It's a core value for us here because we know we have to continue to remind ourselves. God, we know that's a challenge. But God, you are doing so many things behind the scenes right now that if, if we could see them, it would change our perspective completely. 
So God, I pray that you would give us the grace to be able to see what you're doing, that you would supernaturally connect us with the people that we need in our lives right now. People that will lead us, people that will follow us, people that will walk with us. God, relationships are at the heart, at the center of your story. And God, we need to have healthier relationships in our own lives. Ultimately, God, that begins with a relationship with you. And if there's someone in this place who's not a follower of Jesus, I pray that today they would surrender their heart to you, even without knowing all the facts, just to say, Jesus, come into my life. I give you everything that I have. I'll step away and walk away from what it is that I've been holding on to and I'll cling to you. And God, I pray that we'll be the church family that those individuals need as they take their next steps and we point the way and we encourage them along the way as well. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy and for the people who have changed our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you all stand with us now, please?